It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Podcast Network, I'm Dana Perino, and everything will be okay. Hello and welcome back. Last week I was joined by clinical psychiatrist and author of Everyday Vitality, Turning Stress into Strength with Dr. Samantha Boardman. She is an incredible person. I am honored to call her a friend and I really highly encourage you to get her book, Everyday Vitality, because I dog-eared so many pages in that book um, because I thought there was terrific advice in there. So I highly recommend it. And this week, I'm joined by another New York Times bestselling author and philanthropist, and he is sharing some of America's most important stories. One of the best ways to figure out who you want to be and how you want to live is to observe others. We learn best by watching and listening, taking it all in. Think about who you admire. Why are you drawn to her? Is it her strength, sense of humor, capabilities, determination, dignity, or grace? David M. Rubenstein is a New York Times bestselling author, co-founder, and co-executive chairman of the Carlyle Group, one of the world's largest and most successful private equity firms. And David is the chairman of the boards of trustees of the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts and the Council on Foreign Relations. He is an original signer of the Giving Pledge and a recipient of the Carnegie Medal of Philanthropy and the MoMA's David Rockefeller Award. Quite celebrated and duly so. David Rubenstein, thank you for coming on the podcast. Tell me how you had the idea for this book. Well, I've been spending a lot of time dealing with American history recently, and um, I've had a number of people that I've interviewed who are historians, and I just thought about the evolution of our country, how we went from the rhetoric of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and have struggled more or less to live up to that rhetoric over the last 230 years. We've built a country that is the model for representative democracy, but we clearly have problems and challenges. And this book takes you through that with the pluses and minuses of this struggle that we've had over the last 230 years. What do you think some of, um, maybe I'll ask you, your your top two or three struggles that we have as a country right now and why it matters that we're not living up to the ideals in that regard? Well, the creed of the country is that all men, really all women, are created equal. But as we all know, everybody hasn't been treated equally throughout our country's history. But the country's uh, evolution towards equality has been, you know, something other people have admired around the world. And clearly, we've led much of the world, not all of the world, in some of this effort to have equal rights. Uh, For example, in the Constitution, initially, we allowed slavery. We also didn't permit women to vote or really own property if they were married. So we've made lots of changes, but we've got a ways to go. The biggest struggles the country has today, I would say inside the country, leaving external issues are uh, out for a moment, are one, the growing income inequality and lack of social mobility. Uh, Two, the 
sclerotic nature of the government. The government doesn't seem to be able to get things done or move forward quite as quickly as I think it should be able to do. And three, I think to some extent we have lost the American dream in the view of some people. In other words, I came from modest circumstances and lived the American dream, but many people from different backgrounds uh, don't feel that the American dream is any longer viable for them. And sadly, the people that believe in the American dream today are immigrants to our country. The people that are born here very often now no longer believe in the American dream. And so we've got to get that spirit back. That's a big problem as well. Interesting. Do you, um, for number one on income inequality, I know that uh, you obviously have thought a lot about that and you've been a real leader um, as somebody who has succeeded and to try to think about what can be done uh, from, I guess, philanthropy perspective or um, advising governments and even the private sector on what to do. But are one and three, so growing income inequality and then this lost American dream, are those connected? Yes, to some extent, because people um, at the bottom don't feel they can get to the top anymore. And very often they've given up. Now, there's no easy answer for this. But I'll tell you one thing that does worry me that we should try to address. 14% of the adults in this country are functionally illiterate. That means they can't read past the fourth grade level. If you can't read past the fourth grade level, you have no chance of really getting very far in society. 80% of the people, 80% of the people in juvenile delinquency system in our country are functionally illiterate and two thirds of our prison systems in the federal prison are functionally illiterate. So we've got to deal with K to 12 education. We're not going to solve this problem by increasing taxes, in my view. I mean, you can increase taxes. Maybe taxes should be increased, but you're not going to get solve income inequality and lack of social mobility by, by doing that. What do you think about um, some of the other ways that I think maybe, maybe a more progressive view, for example, in Oregon recently, they decided to not have graduation requirements for high school seniors. Um, and there, no testing, no aptitude tests, nothing. They, they're not even just, they're not going to test. And that makes me think, well, if you aren't testing and you don't know if their aptitude is where it needs to be, then you're probably not going to give them a very good start in life. Well, I think testing is a general way. You Throughout life, you're going to be tested. You're always going to jump through hurdles throughout life. And if, if you get used to the idea of never being tested, never being challenged, then I think you're not going to be prepared for what life really is. In terms of testing, one of the tests that we should be giving people is civic and American history tests. As you may probably know, uh, right now, very few people in this country can really pass a civics test. It turns out that recently in 49 out of 50 states, majority of citizens couldn't pass the basic citizenship test that foreigners have to take to become citizens in this country. 91% of them pass the test. So I, I'm not against eliminating testing unless it's a subject that I wasn't good at. <laughs> I know my husband is British, and I remember when he took the uh, citizenship test back in, I think, 2006. I mean... He he got it. He got them all right, but he was so nervous and he really studied really hard. And I remember looking at that test and I thought, maybe this is just the test that we should give to high school seniors before they graduate. Well, right now, um, some people are talking about before you get a driver's license, maybe you have to pass this test. But in the back of my new book, um, we have the test in there. There are potentially 100 questions you're asked. You're actually asked 10 but you're, you have to study for 100. Right. And you have, you have to get six of the 10 right. If you're 65 or older, they tell you exactly which 10 questions they're going to ask you. Oh. But amazingly, <laughs> in 49 out of 50 states, the only state being Vermont that passed, the majority of citizens couldn't pass this basic test. Wow. Meaning they couldn't pass the 10 questions. That's correct. Wow. Well, that's not good. Not good. So 
Um, now, you've worked in the White House. Yeah. I've worked in the White House. And, you know, when you work in the White House, you 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 know a lot about government, you know about, about policy. But most people in the country really don't know much about things like this. And two thirds of Americans, when asked how many branches of, of government are there in the federal government, don't know. So should that education start earlier? And is that something you think that government being sclerotic, as you point out, is not equipped to do well? And maybe there's another way? Well, as Winston Churchill famously said, democracy is the worst form of government except every other one. Our right. form of government is the best government I've seen, but it has its flaws for sure. And right now, uh, as you as you know from your own background, the country isn't really doing very much in terms of Congress. It's, it, they, all they really do is, it seems, is focus on you know passing uh, appropriation bills and then debt limit bills and, and so forth, things that are necessary to keep the government going, but things that are really going to make the country better. We have a hard time passing those things these days, and in part because the country is divided down the middle. It's very difficult to govern. When I worked in Congress in the late 70s, you know, you had a lot of bipartisan legislation. You don't see that so much anymore. So that's that's a real challenge for our country. It's, it is really interesting because I look at some of the polls that come out, and it's almost evenly flipped back and forth. For example, on the economy, if in a Republican administration for President Trump, uh, it would you look at Republicans and Democrats and how do you think the president is handling the economy? It was a certain number um, with President Biden. It completely flipped. Um, and I, I do wonder uh, we don't have to talk about the state of polling in the country because that's also in flux with technology. I wanted to ask you about how you well, I guess how you chose all the people you talked to. But what I was really telling the young producer um, I was talking to is that I love what you get to do because you probably thought, I'd like to study this. I'd like to think about this. And here's some people I'd like to talk to. And you get to talk to the most amazing people. I, I noticed that you talked to Ken Burns, right. uh, one, the uh, documentarian. Uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with some of his work. How, how's he feeling about the country? Did you get a sense either from him or maybe the others? Is there optimism or are they worried about the future? I think most people that I talk to are generally optimistic about the country's future, though they're uh, able to point out the, the challenges. In Ken Burns' case, he has reinvented uh, documentaries, really. And obviously, you probably saw the famous one on the Civil War. The yes. one I interviewed him about is one 25 years later on the Vietnam War, which, as it turns out, he un uncovered documents that show that the political leaders in our country knew we had no chance of winning that war militarily. And so we fought it really for political purposes. And many people died, 58,000 Americans died for uh, political reasons and probably it's an unfortunate situation. But generally, I'd say most of the people I deal with are optimistic, uh, generally, or probably they wouldn't have achieved things. You have to be optimistic to get somewhere in life. If you're a pessimist all the time, you probably won't want to achieve anything. And so I found interviewing people to be you know, an uplifting experience generally, because I'm interviewing people that generally have accomplished something and people uh, are optimistic about the future, even though they're willing to point out some of the flaws in our current system. I also was interested in a couple of other people you spoke to. Believe it or not, Rita Moreno was my commencement speaker. Really? Yeah, in 1994 in Pueblo, Colorado at the University of Southern Colorado. Right. And I remember her, of course, my, my, to be honest, when I was um, 22 or whatever, I remembered her from the electric company. That's well, what I, I remembered. You, uh... And I, then I came to understand all that she had accomplished and she was an amazing person. She is an amazing well, person. You pronounce her name correctly. Most people do not. I didn't initially. I thought it was Marino, but it's Moreno. You're correct. Mm -hmm. um, she's about 88 now, but still active. Uh, delightful personality. I got to know her first when we gave her an award at the Kennedy Center for Kennedy Center Honors. 
but a really, really smart person. And, you know, went through her, her life and, her, and it's really quite a remarkable. She lived with uh, for, for quite some time with Marlon Brando. And because of his unfaithfulness, she took some sleeping pills to kill herself. Fortunately, uh, somebody found her and she was awoken then lived, uh, obviously, a successful life post that. But she came very close to dying as a result of uh, things with Marlon Brando. I read that she that uh, some people just wanted to constantly change her, like not to let yeah. just let her be herself. And I don't know if well, maybe young women that are successful are going through that today. I think of Naomi Osaka, the tennis player who has said that she has um, anxiety issues. She doesn't want to talk to the press after the tennis tournament. She's working on that. Um, but it does seem that this pressure, and I, it's not just on women, I get that, but maybe it does tend to maybe make them feel a little bit more pressure. Is that right? Well, there are men who have the same problem. It, the pressure is great because, remember, today uh, when you're playing in a tennis tournament, for example, you got people all over the world watching you. So many people know exactly what you do because of social media and so many other uh, media outlets today, everybody knows what everybody's doing practically all the time. And if you don't do something well, all of a sudden people criticize you and people are not embarrassed about criticizing people on social media. I think that's an mm -hmm. understatement. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of tennis, you also spoke to Billie Jean King. And I wonder about the, as she looks back at what she accomplished in terms of women getting paid um, e equally in, in, in the world of tennis, if she looks at this now and it just it took quite a while, but now women tennis players are at the top. They are. Women tennis players are now paid equally as a result of her effort. But I think when history is written, among the things that she'd be most remembered for is the fact that she was willing to identify herself as being uh, lesbian when that was very, very difficult for a professional athlete to do so. And she took courage for her to do that. And now I think people are not obsessed with people's sexual preferences, whether they're athletes or non-athletes. And I think she made a big uh, step in that direction. I, I, yeah, I really loved her book as well, the one that just came out. It's, it's really good. Um, the other woman that you talked to that I've come to know just a little bit is Madeleine Albright. And uh, President George W. Bush painted her as part of his book of um, the portraits of immigrants that he did. What a life story she has. Yes. I mean, an immigrant, there are two immigrants who became Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger and Madeleine, but she was the first woman to be Secretary of State. And uh, she had quite a quite a life to get here. She had to live through the Nazis and the communists. And eventually she got here and uh, grew up to be uh, secretary of state. Now a role model for women, I think, all over the world, not just in this country. I think so, too. And I, I also really uh, appreciate how she talks about, for example, the one of the challenges she had and, and the Clinton administration had was dealing with the war in Bosnia and that her life, her past experience as a young refugee and watching what her parents went through and getting through all of that really did shape her views. So maybe speak a little bit about that in terms of how experiences are shaping people's um, okay. leadership abilities. I think what I wanted to talk about a bit in the book and the reason I interview her, interviewed her was about immigration. Mm -hmm. This country is a country that has been called a melting pot, but in truth, uh, it's sometimes we haven't wanted people to come here. When, when this country first started, anybody could come into the country. There were no passports, no visas, just showed up. Eventually, we passed laws that made it more difficult, but we really wanted people from Western Europe. When people from Eastern Europe, people who were Jewish, who were Asian, started coming, we changed the laws in 1925. And from 1925, essentially, to 1965, we really prohibited a lot of people from coming. Now, we welcome a lot of people in this country again, and I think that's good for the country. We have about 40 million immigrants in this country and about 46 million people who are children of immigrants. 
And I think they've given the vitality to the country because very often immigrants are hardworking. They really know what it's like to struggle. They come here and they make the country better. Well, yes. And they start businesses. They're willing to take risk. Um, and I, I look at all of this, the, the situation in terms of the worker shortage across America right now. And it's very, it's an interesting conundrum. The labor participation rate is flat. It doesn't seem to move month to month. And even now with these unemployment payments that the enhanced unemployment payments that had um, ended in several of the states, it didn't seem to have moved the needle. Do you, do you have any thoughts on what's going on there? The labor participation rate used to be around 66%. It's now down to about 62% and probably staying steadily there, uh, as you point out. Um, one of the problems uh, that, we, that is caused by COVID to some extent is that people have seen they can, they don't have to work anymore uh, or work in the kind of jobs they had before. They've had a chance to rethink their life. So many people don't want to work at the pace they had before they quit their jobs. As we all know, it's difficult for some employers to get em employees now. They're increasing wages, but even so, it's not easy to get employees. And uh, we, we have a labor shortage in some respects, even though the unemployment rate is not as low as it could be. There's a labor shortage because a lot of people don't like the jobs they used to have or they're not happy with the wages that they used to have. So in that regard, I wonder if, uh, I, I assume not, that our government would be willing to increase legal immigration for these entrepreneurs and people that want to take a chance. Well, I think that the government should do so because many of the people that are willing to come who are educated, who have really good uh, work skills are the kind of people we need to help our, our economy move forward and be vibrant. Not that people born here can't do that. But if you take a look at Silicon Valley, for example, one third of the companies there, the new companies are run by immigrants. And that just shows you that you, you get a lot of great um, entrepreneurial spirit by getting immigrants into this country. And so I, I think it's the kind of thing we should more we should encourage more. But as you know, because of the illegal immigration problem, it's very difficult to touch immigration. And we haven't had an immigration bill for many, many years. We'll be right back with more of this interview after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. How much do you think COVID has maybe permanently changed work or education? I noted today in the Wall Street Journal, a big story that they did on um, higher education, um, meaning college and beyond. And one of the things that they found is that um, men are, younger men are deciding not to go to college at all. They might go to a, um, a coding book camp, boot camp, maybe try something else, or, but in many cases, just deciding not to pursue a higher degree. And that several of them said they just feel lost. It's true. Um, it used to be that women and men roughly attended college in the same percentages, but now maybe women are attending at a much higher percentage than men, in part because men uh, have been frustrated at, uh, at their inability to get jobs uh, or having to defer getting a job because they need a college degree and the college degree they don't think is all that useful. I think that's a mistake. I think generally more education enables you to get a better job throughout life. But I recognize that right now when, when 20 year olds are just frustrated with with their, let's say, their educational or their, the lack of education. And they just feel like just go get a vocational kind of job and probably not get a very high income throughout the rest of their life. It's a, it's a sad situation. In my case, my parents did not graduate from college or high school, but they instilled in me the belief that if you get an education, you're likely to get a better job and do more with your life. And I, I think that's that's true for everybody. So and maybe get your thoughts on this, too. The. Um... I have a, a few friends who 
are in their were in, are in their sixties, uh, men. Uh, they're white men, uh, all laid off during the pandemic. Pretty good jobs, higher level jobs, and have been applying and trying to find other work and just don't even get a nibble. Seems very doesn't seem right to me for some of these companies. If you need workers and you want some good experience, even if they, if even if you think they're not going to be there for. 15 or 20 years, it seems to me they're, they're a pretty good investment. Uh, yes, that's true. A lot of white men in their 50s and 60s who have been laid off are not people that people are dying to hire. Um, in, ironically, the president of the United States is 78 years old. Uh, we, we have a lot of people who are very prominent doing great things in this country who are in their 70s. And now people who are just 60 are oftentimes finding it hard to get a job. Uh, because people want younger people or or maybe they want more diversity. So it is a, a real conundrum. Um, what did Walter Isaacson, you spoke to him, uh, what, he's a historian, a journalist, uh, amazing, a, a good friend of mine as well. Um, what did he say in terms of the importance of innovation at this time in our history? Well, innovation is what really has made this country so unique. And basically, this country is an innovation. We We invented this country. And since that time, the concept of entrepreneurial innovation in the business world has really made this country, I think, the greatest economic power in the world, from the steam engine to so many other things, the Internet and so forth. The United States has really been the place that has been the forefront of innovation. And what he said in his book about this and what I, he said to me many times privately is that it's very rare to find a genius who actually comes up with an idea himself or herself. And then that just goes forward. It becomes a great company. Usually it's a team. It was uh, Steve Jobs and 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 uh, Wozniak, for example, who built Apple, or it was uh, Bill Gates and, um, and 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 Paul Allen who built Microsoft initially. Usually, have partners, and it's not just one person. And usually, the great innovations you see often are building on innovation that somebody else had. So it's very rare that a light bulb goes off in somebody's head. They come up with something nobody else ever thought of, and they do it by themselves. But as soon as we stop innovating in this country and we discourage innovation and entrepreneurship this country's economic future is really doomed. Do you feel really frustrated with the state of um, governing in the country? It's frustrating because so little is getting done and everything is bitterly divided. And in, when I used to work on Capitol Hill, as I mentioned, people used to get together more frequently. I have started a program once a month where I interview a member, uh, uh, interview in front of members of Congress only, a great historian. And uh, that is something that members like because they could come talk with people from the opposite party, sit with people in the opposite party. There's no press there. And, and they can actually socialize. Because of COVID, we've had to put that in abeyance for a while, though. We're going to hope to start again soon. But I think members of Congress are yearning for bipartisanship uh, privately, but publicly they're they're castigated for it. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's a sad situation. The government just doesn't really move at the pace that it should to get things done. Sadly, other governments um, in countries that aren't as good as ours have governments that at least can get things done from time to time. I love the idea of that um, the speaking series, uh, speaker series, because when I worked on Capitol Hill, uh, I worked for a pretty conservative member of Congress from Colorado, though to, in today's um, measurement of conservative, I don't know where he would land, but uh, he had very good friends on the other side of the aisle. And I think social media has, and c cable news, frankly, has um, exacerbated the divisions, unfortunately. Uh, so that sounds like a really good idea. Um, I would love to listen to those as well. Well, um, you should come sometime. I would love to. I would love to. Um, just as we wrap up here, um, you have an inspirational message. And I feel like I get asked often if I do an event, 
of people seem to be in despair about America. I mean, if I could put it to you, why should they not despair? Well, the United States is still the country that everybody really would like to live in. Nobody is dying to immigrate to China or uh, or so many other countries. People want to come to this country. Why? Because there's greater freedom here, uh, because we have greater opportunities here. We've got our natural resources, uh, talented people. We are we have our problems for sure, but it's not a country that anybody, I think, is dying to leave. Very few people emigrate from this country. Uh, for tax reasons, that's the only reason people really leave the country, and that's very few people that do that. So we are the finest country on the face of the earth, and maybe the finest country that's ever existed, greatest opportunities ever for anybody to rise from the bottom, but it's not without uh, some challenge at some point. And I just wish that right now we could get the government to work a little bit better and more smoothly. If there were two or three things you think that they should do, what would they be? For the government? Yes, yeah, so like if you had to prioritize, if you were, had a triage list and you thought, Here's two or three things that the, if the government did these well, things, about, things would help. No, no congressional salaries unless they can reach a budget bill on time. Well, I, that's tongue in cheek, obviously. But I would say that um, they ought to just spend more time talking to each other because right now they don't really talk to each other. They don't socialize with each other. They really don't know each other uh, that much. And I wish they had to spend less time raising money. Mm. Members of Congress in the House side have to spend about 40 percent or so of their time raising money for their elections. And that just takes them away from doing the, the legislative things and also takes them time away from working with people from the opposite party. That's a good point. And also, they all have the PACs as well. And I don't think that many people realize that there's very limited rules on PACs. And you can use that money for anything. Yes, uh, this is something people don't understand. If you, uh, Why do members of Congress raise so much money? There are three reasons. Number one, um, it scares people from running against them. Uh, number two... Um, it is money they can use for other purposes, like uh, giving it to another member that might help vote them into a chairmanship or something or support them. And three, when you retire, you can keep that money the rest of your life. You can't use it for personal purposes, but you can use it for political purposes, and that can give you some power. So for the rest of your life, you have this money. That's why people raise it. I wish we would uh, change the rules a bit so that you couldn't keep the money afterwards and it, you couldn't be using it for anything other than your own campaign. I actually think that's that. I think that is smart. I think that some of these members uh, of Congress, and, and maybe not even. I'm thinking of one in particular who's no longer there. Um, raised millions of dollars, and only gave away to another campaign five thousand dollars in a year. Well, see, the rules are such that you can basically do almost anything you want with the money. Right. To be honest, I mean, you can hire your nephew and say, "Well, he's my campaign advisor," or you can rent. Uh, your in-laws home and say, that's the home that I'm using for my campaign offices. That's an exaggeration, right. but generally right. there, there aren't that many constraints on it. And uh, the only people that can impose those constraints are members of Congress. Right. And <laughs> probably they're not going to impose that many constraints. Yeah. So look, I, I don't want to make fun of members of Congress unduly. I do want to do want to point out that we would, we would be all well served if members of Congress would increase their salaries Right now, you've got about 80 members living in the House of Representatives uh, offices because they can't afford two homes. Uh, we, they haven't had a salary increase of any consequence in more than a dozen years. Uh, and so what you, you tend to get then is people who are um, often um, not able to, uh, uh, you don't get younger people very often coming in anymore because they can't afford it. Mm -hmm. If you've got a couple of kids, it's very difficult to maintain two homes on that salary. It's a, not a good situation. I wish that we would let members of Congress get higher increases in their in their compensation. 
uh, that would be a, a start. I just love having a chance to talk to you, David. Thank you so much. Good luck on the book, The American Experiment. It's sure, sure to be another um, very successful bestseller. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. David has a lot of thoughts, a lot of ideas, and some pretty good advice. If members of Congress want to take a listen, uh, they could take him up on that. But I really like that idea of the speaker series. Any chance you get a, any chance you get to sit and listen, and I think that's one of the reasons podcasts are so popular. Is that you can listen to all sorts of people and their ideas, and it's a great way to just think things through and also maybe make a new friend along the way. So everyone, make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. I'm Dana Perino. Everything will be okay. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.